Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. Today, we're speaking with Ari Pandas, Associate Professor at the Haskins School of Business in Calgary, Alberta. Ari's led and published numerous papers on the capital markets. For example, one of them is titled, Does Spending Time in the Miners Pay Off? In that piece, he and his co-authors dive deep into the benefits of starting out on the TSX venture and then graduating up to the larger exchanges like the TSX or the NASDAQ. Now, Ari's a champion of the public venture capital system that we have in Canada. And so he and I both reflect on this as it's a passion that we share. It can be argued that private venture capital and public venture capital are very comparable sources of funding, albeit with different written and unwritten rules of engagement. One thing to be said is that the international interest in the Canadian junior capital markets continues to increase. Ari and I also discussed that the participation of retail investors is vitally important both for the companies to succeed as well as for the markets to succeed. It also supports the argument that if you are a public venture company, you should embrace and engage your retail investors because they're the major source of liquidity that helps you grow into attracting institutional investors. Something else that I find really interesting in our conversation is his recent launch of a student-led venture capital fund at the University of Calgary. The fund has closed over a million dollars in real capital, which the students are actively investing in early stage companies. It's surely an outstanding initiative, and I'm really excited to hear what the outcomes will be. There's a lot to take away from this episode, so enjoy the show. On the line, I have Ari Pandes. Ari is the Associate Professor of Finance at Haskane School of Business here in Calgary, Alberta. And also, you are the head of the department, as I understand. Ari, thanks so much for making the time. I'm looking forward to our discussion. Thanks for uh, having me on, Corey. I'm uh, looking forward to the discussion as well. What I like is, is you've done so much interesting research and work in the world of finance, as well as specifically in the world of public venture capital or public finance. And so I think probably best is if I hand it over to you to introduce yourself and your career, and then we can get into some of the work you've done because it's so interesting and applicable to the audience that we have with the podcast. So what do you say? I'll hand it over to you and you can give us the background on uh, you and your career. Sure. Yeah. So as, uh, as you mentioned, I'm an associate professor of finance at the University of Calgary's uh, Haskane School of Business and the current area chair there. So I joined the faculty here in Calgary in 2009. I was born and raised in Toronto. I did all of my schooling there. And then upon finishing my PhD in 2009, I uh, took the faculty position out here. Uh, so, so Calgary's home now. And actually, you know, moving out west, it was a bit of an eye-opener for me in terms of the differences and needs and wants of, of, of the different parts of the country. You know, when you grow up in Toronto, the saying is correct. 
you have a very Toronto-centric view of the world and, and you're really sheltered from anything else that goes on. Right. Um, but in terms of sort of shaping my research, you're right, I'm interested in the public venture capital versus the private venture capital space. And, and part of that is the move out West uh, in the sense that the public venture capital markets have been crucial to the development of early stage companies out West. If you think about the origins of the TSX Venture Exchange, for example, you know, they started out as the Vancouver Stock Exchange initially and the Alberta Stock Exchange. And you had these regional exchanges because the early stage companies here uh, were sort of capital start because they were shut out of the large pools of capital that existed, uh, say, in central or, or eastern Canada. So moving out here was a bit of an eye opener and it got me really interested in learning more about the public venture capital space and, you know, some of the, the politics and the dynamics uh, around that. So we'll talk a little bit more about that a little later on, but that sort of shaped my view. And then at the university, obviously, I wear a few different hats. I teach across the board. So I teach senior undergrad, uh, graduate, which includes MBA, executive MBA, and then I do sort of in-house executive teaching as well at corporations. I'm sort of an administrator as well, quote unquote, as you mentioned, I'm the area chair of the finance area. So I coordinate all the area initiatives and coordinate all of that. And most importantly, I do research. And as you alluded to, uh, it focuses a lot on the capital markets. So initial public offerings, uh, financing activity, investment banking issues, public versus private venture capital, and, and most recently, a, a little bit of law and finance. And if we have time, I can talk a little bit about that as well. Ari, I think it's really interesting, your, your background and, and the focus on public venture capital versus private and, and all the research you've done. And in fact, I, I think there's, there's a number of conversations we could have. And, and as you touched on, you know, even moving into business law and things like that. But what I want to do is, why don't we start with the discussion about public versus private venture capital? And, you know, at just another point, I do, I would love at some time to even discuss the history of what you could call the Wild West with you coming out to Alberta and Vancouver as those early exchanges, which have come to make our public venture capital system. So why don't we go, we'll start with public venture capital versus private venture capital. And, and you can share with us how you see the pros and cons of both those systems. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, a, a lot of us here about venture capital when we think of private venture capital. And certainly that's big if you think about the US markets and in the US market in general. But you know, if you look across different countries, uh, including in Canada, venture capital is actually not that large. So what's happened there is a lot of different economies around the world have had to rely on public venture capital, or at least they've tried to set up exchanges where you can tap into public venture capital, meaning from the general public, like the citizens that can invest just like they do in the senior markets. So there's advantages to that, and I'll talk about that. But you know, the big, I guess, key thing about private venture capital that's good and important is that you get the human capital element. So you've got you know, venture capital investors that have expertise, they've got strong networks, particularly if you're thinking about the reputable and the big venture capitalists, and they have that human capital touch. So they can basically gear you in the right business direction. They'll see things you might not see. They'll have access to strong management teams that they can put in place. They can take board seats, and they often do, and shape the board of directors. So you've got good governance structure in place. So there's a lot of pluses with the private venture capital in that you're really getting 
that coaching, that mentoring, that monitoring, which is actually pretty important in getting a, a company off the ground. And that expertise is obviously crucial. Uh, now, on the downside is you're giving up something by doing that. And if you're sort of a strong-minded business entrepreneur, you've got a vision that you think will be successful, and you know you want to build your own team surrounding that, and you feel you're capable in doing that, then when you bring in private venture capital, you're giving up a bunch of control and decision-making power, which can be a, a serious downside of the private venture capital space. Of course, another big disadvantage in private venture capital is there's illiquidity associated with it. So when you give up a chunk of your firm, there's high risk associated with that. And there's an illiquidity premium that the, uh, that the venture capitalists, the private venture capitalists will demand. Now on the other side, the public venture capital, you've got the benefits of all the things that public markets offer. So going back to that illiquidity premium, that's less important in the public venture capital space. And you can, moreover, tap into a large pool of investors if we think about retail investors, right? So regular investors like you and I, who don't meet certain thresholds in terms of net worth, wouldn't be able to invest in private companies. So that is an advantage of the public venture capital space is it allows regular citizens like you and I who are saving for retirement and might want a little bit more appetite for risk taking and are looking for really growth opportunities that might not exist in, in senior exchanges where you've got larger firms, it allows us to tap into that growth capital and share in the journey and the growth of the, of the companies. So I think that's a, that's a pretty big and important advantage. And I often say this in sort of media interviews, and I think it's underappreciated. If you think about the income inequality that we talk about these days, and it's you know, a hot button issue in most economies, Part of that is, you know, if you've got more companies going the private marketplace route, you know, tapping into private pools of capital, then you're going to have fewer and fewer average investors who are going to have access to that. And all the wealthy, lucrative deals might happen there. And you're going to have a large swath of the population not being able to have access to that. So the public markets, I think, can help in that income inequality side of things where you can allow regular citizens to also tap into these growth stories, which I think is pretty crucial if you think about it uh, from society. Yeah. The, 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 a, couple of, a couple of points come to mind there. One is that you know, certainly the best deals do not apply in the world of, of trickle-down economics. And if it's private venture capital, I mean, those are reserved for the upper echelon of, of those in the profession and those who are able to, to capitalize on them. And so, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying there. And I, to me, that's a big you know, a benefit to public venture capital. And I'm also going to reflect on another conversation I had with a, an IR professional who he said to me in Peru as an example, when it comes to mining and mining deals or mining companies, it's almost like sport. It is what hockey is in Canada. Mining is to the Peruvians and the way they embrace the companies there. And I thought that was really interesting. And you could argue that, you know, if we have and we do have and give people access to the public markets and, and early stage companies, you can start to get that kind of, I don't want to, you know, the wrong words, but almost a fanfare or that support mm -hmm. of the opportunities. And I think that's a, a pretty interesting and a crucial piece to helping these, these companies build through early stages. Yeah, no, I think it's certainly true that you get an excitement around being able to invest in these growth stories. And I agree that it can get sort of the country and the citizens and investors really excited about prospects of investing in, in cool opportunities. And that can be mining. It can be in you know tech, which is big right now as well, too. You're seeing a lot of 
interest in that space where, you know, you might have investors wanting to support, you know, new innovations, uh, new opportunities and things of that nature. I mean, and then I guess the other big thing that I didn't mention, which is also crucial, is there's so much transparency mm. and, and rules and regulations around the public market. So, you know, as an investor that you're going to be protected to a certain degree by the rules of securities law, as well as the stock exchanges. So in many ways, you know, it's a great democratizing force. If you think about it, the public markets, it gives us a view, a lens into the operations of public companies that we otherwise wouldn't have. So we discover information through the public markets that we might not be able to. So if you've got a company doing objectionable activities that you don't like, uh, you know, polluting in some important waterway or something like that, all eyes are going to be on that because you're a public company. But if you're in the private space and if we drive more companies to the private space through private venture capital, we might not have that ability to do that. So mm. I think there's more pressure that you bring on the decision makers, increased visibility. I mean, you don't want to go so far where you turn companies off from the public markets because I think to some degree, some have argued that's happening. And I've argued that's happening uh, in terms of the public market pressures that entrepreneurs and CEOs and decision makers face. But yeah, it really gives you a transparency and an openness that you might not find in the private market. So I think from a societal perspective, I think it's also very important. And I agree with you. It gets people excited about Canadian champions if we're living in Canada or in Peru, like you mentioned, uh, you know, developing Peruvian champions. And I think that applies everywhere. Something that I, I think is an important thing for management teams and entrepreneurs to think through is the cost of capital and comparing it between private or public venture capital. Because I think you can do a comparison on both the, the soft and hard costs of what it takes to go down either one of those financing paths. Mm -hmm. what, are you, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So I think the big thing, as I mentioned earlier, is liquidity, right? So certainly, if you think about the cost of capital, you know, open up any academic book and yeah, you, you've got an illiquidity premium and any practitioner will tell you that as well. So you're going to probably be giving up a greater discount, i.e. a higher cost of capital you're going to be facing if you're private in the private space than you are in the public space, just because of the liquidity side of it. And uh, just in terms of information. So if there's less transparency and lack of information, there's more uncertainty and you're going to demand a higher cost of capital. And of course, there's less information in the private side of the world than there is in the public side. So that transparency, the rules of regulation certainly will drive down the cost of capital and hence allow more opportunities to access capital in the public space than in the private space. So I totally agree with that, that the cost of capital when you're a public company, all else being equal, is going to be lower for, for those various reasons. So I think that's an important component of it as well. Hmm. Okay. And I'd like to jump forward to some of your work here because well, as, I, as I mentioned, I mean, it's You've done a lot of interesting research and, and uh, published a lot of interesting work. A couple of the titles of the papers have caught my attention. Mm -hmm. And the first one that I wanted to discuss with you was a paper titled, Can Spending Time in the Miners Pay Off? An Examination of the Canadian Junior Public Equity Markets. And given my interest in public venture capital and the work we do in and around the space, I thought that was a really compelling headline. Can you take us into, into what that research was and the takeaways from that paper? Yeah. So yeah, it's an interesting title, obviously, uh, you know, provocative and, and compelling. Yeah. And basically, you know, the question we were asking is, if you're a TSXV listed company, a TSX venture listed company, 
And you sort of start out there on your growth path and then graduate to the senior TSX market. How does your performance compare once you list on the senior market compared to companies that were privately VC backed and then did a straight IPO on the senior markets? And and sort of the hypothesis or the conjecture we had early on is as the public markets have become that much more complicated to navigate over time, where you got to satisfy various gatekeepers from securities regulators to stock exchanges, proxy advisory firms, auditors, you know, the list goes on. Mm. As the public market pressures have increased, does that learning by doing on a junior public exchange help with the transition once you move to the senior market? So it's really a learning by doing story, right? Managers and insiders acquire the experience to effectively operate a public company on the TSXV so that once they graduate, it's a much more seamless transition than a company that's been operating in the private world and then all of a sudden goes public and is faced with all kinds of pressures that they didn't realize might have existed, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the public markets have become much more complicated and onerous over time as well in terms of rules and regulations changing and increasing as well as you know, a 24-hour business news cycle, social media, all these things make the life of a CEO that much more daunting and exhausting, right? Where they're not necessarily focusing on the business, but they're focusing on all these external pressures as well. So there's some learning that happens in the public world on the venture exchange that you can take with you those lessons to the senior market. So our conjecture was, you know, we think that once you graduate or once you list on the senior market, the companies that had this experience to effectively operate a public company will perform better than their counterparts that did the VC, private VC route, and then just did an IPO. And the evidence supports that. So we looked over a sample period of 2000 to 2014, and we compared the long run buy and hold returns of VC backed IPOs. So these are private VC backed IPOs and TSXV graduations to the senior market. And we found some pretty interesting results that on average, uh, you know, holding for other factors as well, you know, we had a whole host of variables to control for in our analysis. We found that, you know, there was about a 30 percentage point outperformance of graduations than VC-backed IPOs. So it's consistent with the initial hypothesis that, yes, there's tremendous learning that happens when you list on a public venture capital market that you take with you once you graduate to the senior market. And I think that's often unnoticed as one of the advantages of the public venture capital markets as well, that you learn how to navigate and become a good public company. And I think that's pretty valuable where, you know, for a lot of these private VC-backed companies, they go public and, you know, sometimes they're shell-shocked at the amount of work and things that they've got to deal with. So I think that's pretty important and valuable. I've heard people say, for example, even in the junior markets, and you, know, you, you list on the TSXV or the, the CSE and Sometimes you find these CEOs who are very capable and, and have very capable management teams, but it's like they woke up on Tuesday and realized they're a public company and they're going, now what? Mm-hmm. And so I don't think perhaps that there's a forgiveness there in the junior markets that is given to these, these smaller companies before they graduate. But I hear what you're saying. There's an opportunity to learn and refine how you operate in the world of being a public company. So when you do reach the big board, you're able to speak to the stakeholders in a way that, and shareholders in a way that's more sophisticated. 
and then invites that trust you need to maintain that, that well, obviously that, that stock price and return. Mm-hmm. As well as, you know, if you look at the TSX, the way they've structured it is there's a lot of similarities between the junior board, the TSX venture and the seniors. So you're familiar with some of those rules and regulations and the reporting requirements, which are also important. And, you know, the manuals that you've got to understand with these stock exchanges. So that is also important is just being able to navigate the reporting world and the disclosure world and the transparency and the rules and regulations that go around that so you don't fall offside on certain rules. And, and that's important as well. And they've created a very nice system between the TSX Venture and the TSX where it's a very nice transition where you learn the rules and the rules, even though they might be a little more relaxed on the Venture Exchange, they're not that far apart. They're just a little mm-hmm. bit bigger thresholds and, and things of that nature. But by and large, the rules and regulations and the disclosures are, are very similar. And I would add that, you know, the TSX venture is a real model to the rest of the world. So sort of not to sidetrack, but, you know, I went off on a visiting academic appointment in Italy at a university in Bergamo. And one of the connections that happened there is they were very fascinated with our TSX venture market and the junior markets where I had done some research on. And, and for years, the Europeans had been trying to set up their own versions of these second markets but have been unsuccessful with it. So part of this was sort of sharing the knowledge of the junior markets we have here. And, you know, it really attracts companies from all over the world. So Mm -hmm. I think it's really the gold standard if you think about the junior markets. And I think folks in other countries are starting to pay attention and realizing, you know, you guys have something really precious there. How can we replicate that? And the systems that were put in place in Europe previously did not get off the ground and did not do well. And one of the reasons for that is they were not able to draw retail participation. And that is crucial for liquidity purposes, Mm -hmm. as we were talking about earlier. So for whatever reason, the the junior markets in Europe and elsewhere really were just attracting institutional capital. And you had liquidity problems associated with that. So one of the nice things with our junior markets, they're predominantly retail. You don't have very many institutional investors involved at all um, in that space. And I think that's been a big advantage of our system. And of course... You know, not to get into too much detail, our junior exchanges are managed or regulated by the securities regulators where they're regulated by the stock exchanges in, in these other markets. So that's another oh, okay. thing. Yeah, but, but I think it's, it's really the gold standard and it's a very valuable market for sure. Well, I do want to say, and I think it's something we, as Canadians, we should be proud of. It is, uh, we're getting a lot of international interest and international companies looking to, to list on the, on the TSXV and on the CSE because it is unique and, and other countries have not been able to do what, what we've been able to do. And, you know, obviously I say that as an, as a collective, but there's, it's something that I think that, yeah, we should recognize and be proud of. And then the other point, I, I think this could be a whole episode in itself, but is that discussion of, of retail versus institutional and the, the importance of retail when it comes to volume. And I, and I often think that that's something that a lot of, management teams and even IR professionals seem to miss when working with junior companies is is how important it is to to embrace that retail audience because they they can provide the pulse for a company that can attract the institutional capital. Yes, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, in some sense they give you some view around what might become hot, what might become important trends uh, and things like that. And then they provide stability. You know, when, when you might have a large institutional investor flee, 
for whatever reason, you know, it could be a liquidity reason or, or some other reason, you know, you might have retail investors that can fill that gap, right, and provide liquidity and support and stability to the company's finances. So I think that is very important. And I'd argue is one of the big reasons why our venture market is so successful compared to venture markets that have tried to get off the ground in other markets. So I agree that that retail component is actually pretty critical. And part of the reason why we as Canadians might not realize how important it is, is we're you know, sometimes too Canadian. You know, we don't really promote what we have <laughs> all that well sometimes. And, and no, we just why, apologize about it. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. So, you know, when, when you reached out, you know, I was really excited to see, you know, there, there's people talking about this because part of it is getting the word out to the Canadian market that we've got, you know, the, a gem of a market here in terms of public venture capital that a lot of people might not realize. And yeah, we should be championing it for sure and getting the word out. So I totally agree with that. Awesome. The next piece of work that I that caught my interest was uh, a paper you published, The Role of Agents in Private Entrepreneurial Finance. Can you expand on this? Where did that, what research did, did you take from there? What uh, findings did you take from there? Yeah, so that piece of work was looking really at the private market. So private placements, these are private companies raising capital from private investors. So not the public markets like we were just talking about. And I've done some work with the Alberta Securities Commission in the past. I've got a good relationship with them. And one of the things uh, that they allowed us to do as researchers is go in and view their private market financings. So obviously, we had to go through rigorous disclosure and confidentiality agreements and things like that. You know, We weren't able to take out names and addresses of investors and things like that. So everything was above board, just in case we have a, a listener from the, from the ASC. Mm-hmm get a little nervous. But but we had access for a four-month period in 2006 to their financings over that period. And what we observed was that the private market financings are enormous. So we basically saw that over a four-month period, there was $1.4 billion in proceeds that was raised just from private financings. So these are investors that qualify as friends, family, and business associates, or accredited investors that meet certain net worth thresholds, or offering memorandum exemptions, which are basically like prospectuses, but in the private space, and don't have the same level of disclosure that a prospectus would have. So basically, one of the things that we discovered when we looked at the data is you've got agents involved in that space. And what what do I mean by agents? You know, you've got investment bankers that are actually facilitating capital raising in the private space. You've got smaller financial firms that facilitate that. So these are like brokered agents. And then you also had at that point in time, non-brokered agents, just like individuals trying to expand the network for companies to raise financing from various individuals. So the brokered agents obviously must be registered with the securities regulator, but the non-brokered agents, they don't. So one of the things that we found is that these agents in the private space, and we know they exist in the public markets. I mean, when a company in the public markets raises financing, you often bring in an investment banker or an investment banking team that helps support and facilitate that. But I think what was unnoticed or underappreciated, at least in the research world, and maybe from the practitioner side as well, is these agents, you know, investment bankers or smaller boutique style shops are actually actively involved in facilitating capital raising in the private space as well. And and they play a really important role is what we discovered. So basically, when you have an agent involved, you know, a broker to a larger degree, or even a non-brokered agent, they help you significantly increase the number of investors that you can attract in your financing. 
larger pools of capital. And interestingly, because we had the addresses of the individual agents, they also help you attract capital from a geographically more diverse investor base. So mm. if you think about private capital, it's generally more local, all right? So you're getting financing from locally based investors. But when you bring in an agent, they allow you to tap into capital. So these were a lot of them Alberta companies, but they were able to attract capital from outside the province and even outside the country when there was an agent involved. So that was pretty important. And then, of course, they help resolve some of the information opaqueness that happens in the private space. So they were able to sort of resolve some of those issues and allow you to attract investors that are more informationally sensitive or you know, worried a little bit more about those information disadvantages. So by, by in essence, being a conduit for that communication? Exactly, exactly. So you know, they play an important marketing function, a certification function saying, okay, well, this company, if an agent and a reputable agent is involved, must be a pretty good company or else they wouldn't be associating themselves with it. And of course, we found stronger results when you have more reputable or more capable agents versus less capable. And we define that by broker and less non-brokered agents. So that was a pretty important finding that you know, if you engage an agent and you're a private company, that can help you attract you know, larger pools of investors, greater amounts of capital, and you know, geographically more diverse capital as well. And I think that's an important result that we had through the paper. And just to even document the sheer size of the private market, which we often don't realize. And, and that's just been growing over time, which is part of the reason why we're seeing public listings down is we've got a lot of private capital available for, for companies to attract. Yeah. So I think there's something there. And does in what you discussed there, how does the exempt market cover that? Is that included? Or I, I think it would be included with yeah. EMDs and exempt market dealers as agents. Yes. So, I mean, we were looking at the exempt markets and you're right that the dealers that we were looking at were the EMDs. Uh, mm-hmm. so these are a lot of them, the brokered agents that were with the securities regulators or had filed with the securities regulators. It used to be the case, and I don't know, I think the rules have changed around that. You'd have to get an expert in there. But I don't know if you're still allowed non-brokered agents. I think everybody has to be filing with the securities regulator now to be a, an agent. Right. Well, those rules around that have changed through time. Yeah, yeah. You, you do make a point there. And actually, when I, when I heard it, I, I don't remember the specific stat, but I do remember it being staggering at the size or the amount of capital that is raised in the exempt markets compared to, the, to our public capital markets. It was just, I was like, yeah. Do you have those numbers off the top of your head? I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but certainly that's been the big thing now is there's a flood of private capital chasing deals. And we are even putting in regulations that help facilitate that. I mean, if you think about the, if you're familiar with the exempt space, you know, the offering memorandum exemption, that was an initiative that began here in the early 2000s in Alberta and BC that allowed retail investors to participate in private financing so long as the company filed an offering memorandum, which is like Mm -hmm. a private version of of a prospectus. And the other provinces had not introduced that. So, you know, the big holdout was Ontario with the offering memorandum exemption. And I believe they've recently introduced it as well. But again, it's the push to allow private companies to get greater access to capital. And you're seeing more of that. And it's worked to some degree. I mean, there's much more capital now in the private space. But my worry is, as we make that more easier, you know, you can think of crowdfunding as well as another way of uh, facilitating, you know, capital being raised in the private markets, there is less transparency there. 
and a large swath of the investing public is shut out of the private markets or don't have access to that. And that's worrisome from my perspective, uh, because then you can have potentially a large group of citizens that can't share in the growth stories and the exciting stories that are coming out, which often are accessible through the public market. So it goes back to the point I was mentioning earlier. But when I went, when I started out the discussion, I, you know, I mentioned I noticed the differences in approach between the West and you know the East, and, and you know the offering memorandum is a great example of that. And then another example of that is the Capital Pool Company program, which I'm sure you've heard of speakers mm-hmm. on that. But that originated in Alberta way back in 1986, and that was an interesting story as well, where you know there was an energy crash at that point in time and a lot of junior companies were capital start so basically these blind pools as you call them i mean we call them capital pool companies now but they used to call them blind pools or blank check companies there were a few of these in the us that were happening with some questionable dubious founders and they became pump and dump schemes uh, in mm. the US. so these guys made their way up to canada and in alberta in particular and started doing this in alberta and the first few ended up with pump and dump schemes. You know, they found one guy at the Edmonton airport with a suitcase full of cash, <laughs> uh, <laughs> running, running away with the, you know, citizens' money or investors' money. So basically, the smart folks at the Securities Commission here said, you know, this isn't a bad idea in principle. We just need good rules and regulations and governance in place. So what they formed was, at that point in time, was called the Junior Capital Pool Company, which subsequently became the Capital Pool company. So the JCP then subsequently became the CPC. But the JCP became phenomenally successful. Basically, companies going public via this mechanism. And even now, to this day, it's a very popular way for companies to go public is via this capital pool company approach. And and I bring this up because if you think about the East-West sort of politics at the time when I was doing research, because I've got some research on that as well, you know, I found news articles from back in the day from people out in Toronto and Ontario saying, oh, those guys out West are crazy, cowboys. Mm-hmm. This would never fly. You know, you got a blank check company, just cash for the founders to do whatever with. But they didn't realize that there were good governance principles put in place and good regulations to protect investors. And it became phenomenally successful. And lo and behold, today you see Ontario and the whole country has it. The yeah. Company program has become very successful outside of just Alberta as well. So, so it speaks to the innovation that came out from the junior public markets as well. You know, the TSX Venture, the predecessor, I guess, of that, which was the Alberta Stock Exchange. So, I think there's useful innovation that can come out of this as well, where you've got junior public markets that are concerned with facilitating capital raising for early stage companies. And of course, they're going to be thinking about ways to do that. And I think that's a very encouraging and positive development as well with the public venture capital markets. Hmm. Really interesting. You know, it's uh, as you talk about, you know, that wild west and, and the east looking out west and saying, what are these guys doing? They're just a bunch of cowboys. I mean, you do hear stories. I mean, those old stories of, of guys on the trading floor chalking up trades on a blackboard and and others just printing paper and and you know cashing up and cashing out and there were the formative days and there was nothing that could stop a bad actor but but that certainly has changed and, and yeah again i'll go back to a, you know we should be proud of that and it's that's why it's attracting international interest mm-hmm. um a question i have is like across your career and in, in all the research you've done in capital markets what have you seen change positively and negatively? And, and what do you see coming? 
Yeah, so I think uh, what we've seen is a lot more capital formation happening in the private space. And part of that is encouragement from securities regulators that are trying to find the balance between investor protection and private companies to great access larger capital. A good example of uh, you know developments that I've seen is allowing, like you know, for crowdfunding, for example, where you've got much more connection and interconnectedness between individuals across the globe than you ever did with the internet and social media and all those things. And you're seeing ideas and companies in all kinds of different markets. And that's being shared across the globe at a much faster pace than we've ever seen. So I think part of that is, you know, these crowdfunding to allow people to maybe invest in these different ventures from all over the place. But my worry with that is, you know, crowdfunding in particular is you've got severe information asymmetry problems, right? You can potentially have a a big lemons market. And I think what average investors that are participating in those markets don't understand is there's big illiquidity, which could be a recipe for disaster. So if we think about, you know, the tech bubble back in the 90s, that happened in the public domain. So if you wanted to get out, you can get out. But if we have sort of a bubble-like atmosphere develop in the private market, say through some crowdfunding or some other private channel, you don't have an out as easily because it's very illiquid. So you can have a lot of investors caught not being able to sell their shares like they can in the public market. So I think the growth of the private markets is good in the sense that it allows just another channel for companies to access capital, but we've got to be careful about the unintended consequences of that. Hmm. And that is, you know, creating more uh, potential fraud, information problems, more of a lemons market and things of that nature. So I think that's one development I've seen, and I see that going forward, but I also believe we're going to reach a point where we realize, I think we've pushed too much in the private space, and maybe we should be promoting a little bit more of the public markets, because that's a real avenue for transparency, governance, and broad exposure for the investing public. So I think that's going to be growing, that tension between private and public. And I think uh, that's something I'm sort of keeping my eye on going forward. I think I just think, you know, if you think about crowdfunding, why would you go there when you can go on the TSXV? I think it's a far more effective vehicle for raising capital than crowdfunding. And just that's for much better protection for investors. I mean, if you think about them, the TSX Venture has some small companies on there. So you wonder why companies just aren't going that route because you've got way better investor protection there. I, I see that as more of an organized, transparent crowdfunding and much more success would come out of that model, I believe. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. You know, I I guess there is something here that we we do have the benefit of the pendulum in the sense that it may take time, but that pendulum generally will come back, right? And and perhaps, you know, we'll see the private markets start to sway back towards we're seeing more public offerings compared to the just in private. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, the thing about the venture exchange also is it's been very cyclical, right? So, you know, a few years ago, people were talking about the death of the TSX venture, but, you know, having the benefit of long research studies that I've had and seeing the evolution of the venture exchange, I wasn't on board with the skeptics because that's the nature of the TSX venture. It's an early stage platform. It's going to have cycles. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, historically, it's been very resource driven. And of course, when you have a commodity boom cycle, it's going to be very successful. And then, of course, you're going to have listings dropping off delistings when things sort of fall down. And that was happening a number of years ago when there was a white paper put out to sort of revive the TSX venture. But as you've seen, it sort of come back because 
they found new industries. You know, cannabis is one which really took off at one point. And then now the technology and clean tech is growing as well. So, so I think I wouldn't count the TSX venture out, even though some people do that when, when the cycle is down. Um, yeah. We've seen that you know, happen before. We have the benefit of hindsight and history uh, doing, as academics doing long research studies. And people were counting it out years ago as well, and it's come back stronger uh, each time. So I think that's uh, encouraging as well. Hmm, very interesting. No, I'm just looking at time here. Uh, yeah. We've got about 10 minutes, I think, before we'll have to, to cap off our episode. But I, I want to get into something that I think is equally of interest for me and what you're spearheading. And that's the student venture capital project that you've put together at the Haskane School of Business. Can you give us some background on that and what you're doing there? Yeah. So, I mean, it's great because you're seeing so much innovation in Alberta and a push for entrepreneurship. And that's across industry as well as curriculum at the universities and academic research. So, the student-run venture capital fund is an exciting initiative that we just launched uh, literally a few weeks ago, but it's been in the works for longer than that. So, I'd like to give credit to certain people that sort of brought this to my attention. Uh, So, Former investment banker, uh, well-known in Calgary, Vincent Chawley, who is an associate at the CDL Rockies, so the Creative Destruction Lab. I don't know if you've heard of that mm-hmm. platform, but that's a phenomenally successful platform for companies to access capital from, from venture capitalists and, and angel investors. So he had this idea of saying, you know, it would be really cool to have students actually managing private money. So you know, Vincent being an associate at the CDL found that he learned so much in the one year that he was an associate there, thinking about how to invest in private companies and just learning from his peers in the room that he thought it would be really cool for students to have access to this. So he set off in motion getting the CEO, John Wilson and Innovate Calgary involved in saying, can we put something together? And of course, the natural partner with that is the university because we've got experience with curriculum uh, side of things on that. So one thing that we've had at Haskane for a number of years, since the mid-90s, we were one of the first in the country, is what's called the Calgary Portfolio Management Trust. So it's basically a student-run fund, but they manage public equities. And they manage about $5,000 of, of real money investing in public companies. So we've got experience with that student program. So it's natural for us to think about doing something similar, but in the private space where you're investing in early-stage companies. So well, just, you know, I just want to touch on this quick, though. You mentioned for the public equities, the amount of money there, but how much is it for the, the venture capital pool yeah. that you've got? So, so I was about to, to get to that. Yes. Yeah, so so <laughs> we, we've raised, so, so I'll give you a little bit of the genesis. Yeah. So we had uh, Vincent and John approach me. I was, you know, the typical academic being skeptical. Can students really manage private money? Like this is serious. But we actually set off talking to schools uh, that have actually student-run venture capital funds in the U.S. and some in Canada. Queens has a very large one. They've got about $5 million that students are managing. And it's been phenomenally successful in these markets. So it's really expanded the ecosystem of innovation, the cities and the states and provinces that they operate in. The students have gone on to phenomenal careers because of the learning. Mm. But basically, we said, okay, this can work, but we need some money. So UCED, I don't know if you've heard of UCED, but that launched earlier this year through Innovate Calgary. And basically, UCED is intended research and ideas that are coming out of the UFC. So it's to provide pre-seed and seed funding to innovation and help commercialize new technologies 
and basically accelerate the university startup company. So they actually raised $10 million for this UC fund, which is basically devoted to health and child health. So we said, well, can we parcel off? We went to the donors there and we said, can we parcel off 500,000 of that to allow the students to invest? And they thought that was a fantastic idea and they parceled off the 500,000. But then we subsequently used that as motivation to get additional funding. And I couldn't believe the enthusiasm that we got from the business community on this. So within you know a month or so span, we raised an additional about 600,000, just over 600,000. So we've got about $1.2 million that the students are managing of real money to invest in private companies, which I think is super exciting. So we went on a recruiting campaign, you know, hired or brought in to run the fund some phenomenal students. There's 15 of them. We went through a rigorous application process where they submitted one page resume, a one page letter of intent. So we had over 130 applications, unbelievably. We interviewed 70 of them where we gave them a case to analyze and then we interviewed them, grilling them on the case as well as asking them some behavioral questions. And we selected 15 out of those 70 that we interviewed. So it's a pretty impressive group. And and the big thing we wanted as part of this was diversity. And when I say diversity in terms of gender and culture and all that stuff, which is very important to us, but also in terms of background. So we've got people that are engineers in there. We've got people that have geology degrees and science degrees. And we want sort of a diverse pool, not just finance students, but people that come from the hard sciences. Because if you think about investing in early stage companies, you need that expertise. If you're investing in a medical startup or something along those lines, and that's an important component of it. And that's why we've got a really cool, diverse group, not just business students, but we've got some you know, science students and other and art students as well, which I think helps with the investing process, the creative side of it, seeing things that others might not mm-hmm. see. Yeah. And it's been really, really exciting launching that. And basically it's gonna be the students going to these CDL sessions, investing in these companies just like any of the other investors will, looking for potential opportunities for private enterprises to invest in. And you know, they're the real deal. It's real money. And it's pretty exciting. Uh, the students are taking it quite seriously. All right. It's very exciting. I think it's such a remarkable program. I would have loved to have the opportunity to be in something like that and in my university days. I mean, to me, it's what an interesting way to help frame how to approach investing and, and give people that real world experience before they've ever set out into the real world. And I also like the, how do you say that, the meritocracy of it in the sense that it isn't just anybody can come in and be a part of this. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you got to show your merit. You got to show that you have potentially what it takes. So very cool. And Ari, I want to thank you so much for your time. This hour went very quick. Um, yeah. And man, I, I can think of a dozen topics that you and I could continue to discuss. So I hope in the future we can have more discussions like this. But uh, overall, thank you very much. Um, I think a final thing is I'd like to ask, how can the listeners follow your work and get in touch with you if they need? Yeah, so they can uh, shoot me an email. They can find me on the University in the Haskane website, or they can uh, go to my website, repandas.com as well. So www.repandas.com, or they can shoot me an email. They can find my email there or on the UFC's Haskane School of Business website as well. So pretty easy to find me these days. Fantastic. Ari, thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Corey. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. 
You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.